0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: I have a question for you, and I want you to take a minute and think about it. And picture this person in your mind. What makes a perfect friend? A perfect friend, uh, I'd say, is someone who... uh, Someone who uh, will point out your flaws uh, and and still, and still love you.
0: Dependability, reliability. um.
1: A good friend is somebody that accepts your qualities, positive and negative, but also is real with you about like, you know, like checks you when you're wrong, basically. Oh, a
2: perfect friend,
1: I think is somebody that you can trust. And the last time a perfect friend showed that they loved me was yesterday.
0: Yeah, yeah, I have a friend, you know, uh, I'm a single mom and I freelance and I'm an artist. And when I'm low on money, he'll just deposit money into my bank account without me asking. Pretty good friend.
1: (laughs) For my money, the person who's done the best job at describing friendship and defining it is none other than Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher from 2,500 years ago. Aristotle believed that friendship comes in three levels. They're hierarchically arranged with respect to depth and quality. To begin with, at the lowest level in depth and quality of friendships are friendships of utility. and By that he means friendships that you have because they're practical, because they're useful. At a slightly higher level, Aristotle talks about friendships of pleasure. Friendships of pleasure are based on the attributes of another person some beautiful attribute. The person is funny, the person is interesting, the person is lovely, and you like that. But once again, that's a little bit transactional. If that person loses those qualities, you're most likely going to see your friendship fade. At the highest level of depth and quality of friendships, Aristotle calls appropriately the perfect friendship. The perfect friendship is one in which we don't simply have useful qualities for each other, but that we love the same thing. Aristotle admired friendships in which we would basically refract certain loves, and together we would admire something outside ourselves, whether it's religious faith, whether it's particular values, or whether it's just a a simple hobby like fishing or baseball card collecting. He thought that to be truly happy, each one of us needed perfect friendships, and that's what we should look for. There's a problem. I believe that the level of Aristotelian perfect friendships in our society is in decline. I say that not just as somebody walking down the street or talking to others, I say this as a social scientist. I have data that show that that people who say they have close friends are saying consistently as the years go by that the number of close friends that they have is falling. If that's true, it's a crisis. It's a crisis of of love. And if that's true, what can we do about it? I'm Arthur Brooks. Welcome to The Arthur Brooks Show. On this episode, we're talking about the love of friends and why friendship is endangered by the rise of loneliness. This is Doug Nemesek.
2: Yes, thank you uh, for having me today. It's a pleasure to uh, get the opportunity to talk about loneliness with you.
1: He's pretty keen to talk about loneliness because he works for Cigna, the health insurance company.
2: I'm the chief medical officer for behavioral health with Cigna. I'm a psychiatrist and responsible for mental health and substance use programs and services at Cigna Healthcare.
1: Last year, Cigna released a report on loneliness and its impact on public health. The report is called the Cigna U.S. Loneliness Index, and it surveyed 20,000 Americans on what drives loneliness among people.
2: That's correct. So what we found was that nearly half of people said they, they felt alone or left out. 40% said they sometimes or always feel their relationships are not meaningful, that they're isolated from others. Almost 20% said they report they rarely or never feel close to people. So this was... Really significant in the sense that identifying people across the board, all ages, races, genders, saying they feel lonely and lacking those social connections.
1: Over the last decade, Doug Nemesek says Cigna has made this the center of its work because of its impact on public health.
2: Being lonely is a feeling that all of us has felt at, at one time or another. But but truly chronic loneliness and feeling lonely on an ongoing Constant basis really has uh, negative impacts on us physically, uh, emotionally, and 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 ultimately increases our mortality. There are studies that have shown that chronic loneliness is as deadly as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. In fact, it's connected with. Uh, increasing risks for diabetes, for heart disease, and certainly increases risk for other mental health conditions as well, like depression, like suicide, like substance use.
3: Hmm.
1: So this seems like this is a a new way of thinking insofar as, you know, when I was looking back over the past five and 10 years and, and talking to people in the insurance industry, they were talking about mental health issues, particularly depression and anxiety, as largely Chemical imbalance problems. And you're talking about these things as having some sort of exogenous reason for existing, namely the way that they're interacting or not interacting with people out in the world. And do you think is this a new finding that loneliness is actually causing depression and anxiety?
2: Well, loneliness has been around and there's and and research has been done, especially over the last five or 10 years even, we've seen research done and reported by the American Psychological Association, uh, uh, the research uh, being done that I mentioned about the increased mortality uh, being done out at, at Brigham Young University and looking at all of these studies about the impact that loneliness has on health. Uh, as we saw all of the information and this research uh, being done and we looked into it, Cigna really realized we needed to go out and do some more research ourselves. And, and that's what prompted us to do uh, the survey that we did. Uh, we used the UCLA Loneliness Index that's been around for 30 years and used this survey with over 20,000 Americans across the United States And what we found uh, uh, was startling from the fact that nearly half of all Americans reported sometimes always or always feeling alone or left out.
1: We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk to Julia Bainbridge, the host of the podcast, The Lonely Hour.
0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: I'm so excited to have Julia Bainbridge on the podcast. Julia... Uh, Has an interesting background. She's not a social psychologist like a lot of people on the show. She's not a social scientist at all, but she has a podcast called The Lonely Hour. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. Julia.
4: Hi, Arthur. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm glad you're here. Um, you, you, you're you not a social scientist like me. What do you do for a living?
4: Uh, I am a journalist. So by day, I'm a writer. I've worked at um, magazines, Bon Appetit, Food & Wine, so mostly in the food and lifestyle realm. Um, and uh, by night, I guess you could say I study or foster a conversation around loneliness and solitude.
1: <laughs> you know, a lot of the people that we talk to, and, and me too, uh, we're Professionals in these issues were sort of clinical. You, on the other hand, are looking at it from a a, a purely human way. How did you get interested in the subject of loneliness?
4: When I launched The Lonely Hour, I was a freelance writer for the first time in my life, which meant a lot of alone time. And like any kind of creative endeavor, you know, writing takes an enormous amount of work done quietly in one's own head. So I was alone a lot and thinking about other people working alone. That combined with a number of other things led me to start the show. We've you know, embraced a culture of individualism. More of us are living and aging alone than ever before. Um, Traditional sources of social solidarity like labor unions and civic associations are in decline. And social media, which is a big one I'm sure we'll get into, is increasing loneliness and envy. Uh, You know, technology can connect us in amazing ways, but it's also distancing us from one another. So um, I certainly see that when it comes to dating apps, which sort of (laughs) can commodify and dehumanize people. So all of this sort of together, um, I was sitting with for a while, and I wanted to explore what it looks like.
1: So you've been looking journalistically at loneliness, but you've also been obviously looking at some data on loneliness. Do you think loneliness as a phenomenon, not as a pathology and not as a problem, but as as a phenomenon, do you think it's increasing in our society?
4: There are talks about us being lonelier than ever before, and while it's hard for me to say definitively whether that's the case or not, I could make some educated guesses about why. And I would say the biggest reason is the internet and social media. You know, I mean, the formula, as I understand it, while yes, the internet can alleviate loneliness, it's like social connectivity with a click. That's only a temporary form of self-soothing and. Studies show that most people feel the connections made online are less genuine than those made in person. So if we lean on virtual chats and the like too much, disconnecting from the world more and more, the Internet can kind of stunt our real relationships. I grew up before social media existed. and I, I worry uh, as much as I say with this work that I do, I'm really trying to neutralize the taboo and just examine everyday loneliness. I, I am concerned about a, a, a big shift in how we connect or don't uh, because of this um, extra appendage we all walk around with now. And I, it's such, you know, we're naturally insecure, you know, humans, and I think it's such a Great crutch to lean on, um, Mm -hmm. but I think that... If it's leaned on too much, then we don't develop as humans in the way that's really necessary for our development Mm -hmm. into adulthood. I mean, I have this image in my head of, you know, kids on the flat top at recess, like with their noses in their computers instead of uh, walking over to the other side to ask if they can join in a game of Foursquare, right? Like there's always the potential for rejection in an ask like that um, and putting yourself up to that and kind of trying is is a huge part of our development and I wonder if because this crutch is so sturdy, um, kids are leaning on it and um, and then lacking ultimately.
1: Well of course the research says that the answer to your questions is yes. that, yeah. that this is exactly what's going on and it's incredibly deleterious to our social development and to our happiness. Um, there's right. mounting evidence to suggest that loneliness is a huge net source of unhappiness, whether it's a pathology or not, and you know no matter how gr- grievous it actually is, and that social media is is adding to that. It's uh, if that's the case, is it your view that social media? Look, you're you're a a street expert in loneliness at this point, Julia Bainbridge <laughs> is is uh, is social media net net a bad for society.
4: Uh, I want to say yes, but, uh, I'm sure there are lots of corners of this I haven't explored yet. I mean, I think in some ways it's, this is really, it's hard to answer. Yeah. I, I, I would say from personal experience, um, As a journalist, especially in the lifestyle space, it's just a useful thing, right, because I can curate an Instagram feed and you land on that. And in a way, it's my portfolio, right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like certainly for photographers or designers. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I also definitely experience FOMO, and uh, I think it's maybe not healthy to know what everybody else is up to all the time.
1: (laughs) You experience what?
4: FOMO, fear of missing out.
1: Fear of missing out. Uh, Julia, I'm afraid to say that I just found out I'm considerably older than you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I asked you the question, is it net-net, a social bad? Not because there there aren't examples of how this can help Mm -hmm. us to be less isolated, to help us be less lonely. The question is whether for the average person—and the reason I'm fascinated by your work is because— You're looking for the average person. You're looking for the effects Mm -hmm. that things have on the average person because you want the average person to lead a better life. I mean, that's how I read into what you're doing, which I think is great. And I want to know a little bit about a couple of moves that you've made relatively recently. So you're a New Yorker Mm -hmm. and you Mm -hmm. moved to Atlanta and Mm -hmm. you lived in Atlanta for what, two years? Yes. And then you left Atlanta and came back to New York. Why? Why?
4: Yeah. I mean, part of that was always the plan, to a certain degree. Um, But part of that was because I missed my community, right? Like, I'm 36, not 26. I had built a whole world for myself here, and I missed it. So... um I would say that while solitude is clearly important to me given the topic of my show and it's it's important when I think about my apartment especially that I moved back into is, is you know helps this um, it's, it's important my space be one that soothes me and pleases me aesthetically but I also decorated this place expressly for company mm. you know entertaining is one of my favorite activities and the food is really secondary it's kind of about inviting people into my world and mixing together the various groups of people I'm privileged to know and that um, I feel grounded and sustained in the way that I only do when I've had a significant time with my longtime friends, you know, the ones who know me deeply, warts and all, and who choose to continue to bear witness to my life and to share it with me. So I don't want to sacrifice um, that anymore. So I came back to the place where I have it and can can foster it.
1: Hmm. Um, the way that people try to remediate their loneliness when it's becoming a problem in their lives is that they try to develop friendships, of course. So let's Mm -hmm. talk about friendships a little bit, because I know this is something that you think about and something that you talk about in your show. Um, What do you think... Is the core? What are the core elements of, of a really healthy and, and good friendship, one that actually will help people to feel less lonely? Why, why do I say this? Because we talked about social media a lot, and you talk about your Facebook friends. But I'm mm-hmm. going to just go out right on a limb and say Julia Bainbridge doesn't think that that's the kind of friendship that really remediates loneliness appropriately. What's a real friend that makes you less lonely?
4: You, someone with whom you have repeated and consistent face-to-face interaction with. Having lived in Atlanta and missing those friends, I can say that the even hearing their voices on the phone is not a stand-in for um, you know, IRL human contact. Is uh, That's another one you might not know. Do you do IRL in real life? <laughs> IRL. You spend a lot of time on
1: social media, right, Julia?
4: <laughs> Hashtag IRL. Um, yeah, so I think um, it's interesting because... I may be guilty of having overused the term friend. Uh, I think that that's a way to bring up social media, again, not to say it's the root of all evil, but um, I think it can warp your sense of who your real friends are. Uh, And that when I was living in Atlanta and following the lives of some of my quote unquote friends back in New York, um, it made me feel as if we were still close. Um, when now that I've gotten back here, some of those really like acquaintances were really not. Um, and I do have those people in New York who are my, you know, friends with a capital F and I'm fostering those connections more now um, than, um, I don't know, subscribing to this belief that I have a much larger n- network of real friends than I kind of thought I did. Does that make sense?
1: It sure does.
4: Something I've resolved to do uh, uh, you know, upon my return and, and here forward in my in this in the second life of mine in New York um, is to show up for those friends. I think it's really important if you want um, you, you have to invest in those friendships. Uh, my other my deep friendships, the one I've had the ones I've had since college and even before that, um, you know, they require uh, work yeah. like any other kind of like like a romantic relationship. And so um, I've resolved to not uh, flake to do the things I say I'm going to do. The experience in Atlanta taught me that I really value um, my friendships and um, I want to show those friends that I value them through showing up.
1: So what are the two or three things that our listeners should do if they want more love of friends in their lives starting today?
4: Force yourself to go through that uncomfortable ask if it's uncomfortable for you, right? Like just reach out, to a friend and say, let's get coffee and <laughs> because I'm feeling lonely and I want to see you in person. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think if you're honest about uh, the reason and if you're comfortable with using that word lonely, lonely right, which we s- feel a little funny about, um, that will be all the more encouraging for somebody to want to kind of step into your space and lift you up.
1: Julie, I'm so grateful to you for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's really been great.
4: Thank you for your time.
1: My pleasure.
2: Stay tuned after the break.
1: I want to talk for a minute about the language around loneliness. You heard Doug Nemesek there draw parallels between loneliness and smoking. That came from a guy called John Cassioppo from the University of Chicago. Cassioppo co-founded a field called social neuroscience. He's one of the odd academics out there that actually starts a whole new discipline. He was a real pioneer. John Cassioppo passed away last year, but his body of research on loneliness has really helped inform how we talk about this issue. Someone else who's had a big impact on how we talk about loneliness is the man who was one of the first people
3: to call it an epidemic. So my name is Vivek Murthy. I'm a father, a mango lover, and the 19th Surgeon General of the United
1: States. Vivek Murthy served in that position between 2014 and 2017. During that time, he made loneliness a public health issue.
3: He came in to talk about this, and I asked him, why loneliness? Well, there are a few reasons. When I, If you'd asked me when I started my tenure as Surgeon General if I would focus on this topic, I would have told you, absolutely not. There were a whole bunch of other things that I wanted to talk about and focus on. Um, but I found that in my work on everything from the opioid epidemic to obesity and chronic illnesses to um, addiction more broadly, this topic of loneliness kept coming up. And it came up in the stories of people I met in big cities and small towns and It got me thinking about it and got me actually looking more into the subject to understand what the impacts of loneliness were. And what I found really blew my mind, that it increased uh, our risk of heart disease, of depression and anxiety and dementia, that it also actually led over time to a shortening of our lifespan and the impact on mortality uh, of loneliness is, as great as the impact of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, it's greater than the impact and mm. impact of obesity. So, whether we're worried about our mental health or our physical health, we should care about loneliness and about our degree of social connection.
1: Hmm. You said at one point, and this really got my attention, that we have an epidemic of loneliness. And the reason that got my attention is because when the surgeon general says we have an epidemic of something, uh, I know it's a big problem. You don't. You use as as a public health official as a, as a physician. You use those terms under advisement. I know.
3: So what do you mean? There's an epidemic. How widespread is it? So loneliness, it turns out, is a lot more widespread than many of the other illnesses that we pay a lot of attention to and invest a lot of money in. So, for example, uh, depending on the study that you look at, and th- there's a caveat here, which is important, which is that the research on loneliness on how common it is is much more limited than the research on let's say diabetes or heart disease so we we don't have nearly as much data to to be able to say exactly 22.8% of people are affected in this region but what we can say looking at the higher quality studies that have been done using good scales is that in countries like the United States, it looks like greater than 20% of the adult population is affected by loneliness. And that's a conservative approach. There are studies that put the number actually at double uh, that level. What does that mean to
1: say, when you say that 20% of the people are lonely, What what is that? So if, if you tell me that 20% of people have
3: type 2 diabetes, I, I got it. But if you say that 22% of people are lonely, what does that mean? It's a great question. And It brings up the point that loneliness is a subjective term uh, to be contrasted with isolation, which is an objective term. So isolation may be determined by the number of people around you, the number of actual connections you have. But loneliness is about how you feel. If you feel that there is a gap between the social connection that you need in your life and what you actually have, then that is what determines whether you're lonely or not. And if you understand that, then you recognize that I may be surrounded by hundreds of people every day, but still feel lonely if the quality of my connection with them is insufficient. And conversely, I may just have a couple of people around me, but mm. if my connections with them are really deep, then I actually may not feel lonely at all.
1: So 20 or 40%, depending on who's measuring it and how we, how we define it, of uh, people are lonely. And that's, that, I mean, that's an epidemic, even if it's 20%. Loneliness is getting more common. We know that. In other words, loneliness is getting worse. Why? why are people getting lonelier? I mean, if it, if it were the same as always, you know, we might want to deal with it. But the fact that it's, it's booming and you saw it and you're concerned about it is the reason you're writing a book and you've dedicated a part of your career to it.
3: Why are people getting lonelier? Yeah. So I, I think this question about is loneliness increasing or not often comes up. And, you know, the data seems to indicate that there's at least probably a modest increase uh, in loneliness that's taking place because loneliness has been around for centuries. People have been struggling with this issue for a while. But there are particular forces that we're dealing with in the modern world that I think are making the fight against loneliness harder. So one of them is, I think, that the the quality of our relationships with each other, uh, the quality specifically of our time with each other, I think has suffered. How often is it that we have come to the dinner table with family and brought our devices with us? How often is it that we have a friend who's in town from uh, another city and we have dinner and catch up with them, but our phones are ringing and we're checking our messages in between? Um, I worry that the quality of our time has suffered. The other thing that I, I worry about also is that our ability to connect with the people around us so not necessarily our family or friends, but with our neighbors, our coworkers, uh, with our classmates, in, you know, in school. I think that that has also been somewhat diminished because we have more walls around us these days. People walk around, for example, with uh, with earbuds in their ears and listening to a podcast, perhaps, or listening to some something else, and uh, or music. And they also are sort of focused in, you know, on themselves or their devices and not necessarily looking at and enge- engaging the people around them. That has an impact because those small interactions we have. Mm. Those actually make a difference, a material difference in how we feel. Hmm. So this is really interesting because each one of the
1: explanations for the increase in loneliness, for the epidemic, the increasing epidemic of loneliness, comes back to devices. And I'm sure that not far afield from that is what they're doing on their devices, right, which is looking at social media. And social media on devices was supposed to make us less
3: lonely. So what's the deal, Vivek? Yeah, so a couple of things that are worth considering. Number one is technology is, I think, an important role to play here, but it's not just technology because there have been shifts also in, on a cultural level as well that I think are impacting our ability to connect with each other. I mean, for example, we we have... It's moved around a lot more and become more mobile. And that's overall a good thing for a lot of people. But it also means we're detached from our communities. Work has changed the culture of work in such that work now invades many people's evenings, their weekends, their vacation time. One thing, so technology is a piece of this. But what I want to say about tech is that technology in and of itself is not good or bad. I think it can be used actually to promote connection. It can Mm. be used to weaken connection. And the question is, how are we using technology in our lives? But what often can happen with technology is we can, uh, if we're not careful, end up substituting uh, lower quality relationships and interactions for what used to be higher quality in-person interactions. We can also start engaging in passive consumption of social media, which can mean that we accelerate our comparison uh, with other people. We start looking at our feed and seeing these idealized versions of people's lives. And what we end up doing is we compare their best days to our average days, and we always Mm. come out feeling that we're not measuring up. Mm. And that can affect our self-esteem. When you take away uh, their use of social media, which uh, was actually studied in a recent uh, uh, paper that, that Stanford released, what they find is that taking away social media increases people's happiness, life satisfaction, and reduces their feelings of depression and anxiety. The effects are modest, but Mm. they're there in a relatively short period of time. So I think the question is not, uh, do we throw technology out? The question, I think, is really, how do we use technology better Mm. to bridge to offline connection, to strengthen our relationships with the people that we love, and to enable us to be authentically who we are, Mm. as opposed to, walking around with masks on, which is, I feel, a worry about what we do often on social media, representing ourselves in ways that aren't authentically us, but that we think are going to be pleasing to the world around us.
1: I want to ask you a question. I mean, one of the things that I know that you have looked at is the... The fact that the incidence of loneliness across our society is not uniform—some people feel it more than others, and men,
3: in particular, feel it more than women. Why is that? So men are are, are very interesting, and there's a cultural context to all of this, which is really important. Which is, um, when young boys grow up, uh, they have to learn how to be men, and the question is, where are they getting their cues from that tell them what an ideal man is like or what masculinity is about, and. What's happening to a lot of young boys right now, in the United States in particular, is they're growing up with an image of masculinity that tells them that being a real man is about being self-sufficient, it's about not needing other people, and it's about not showing your emotions, because if you show your emotions, then you're weak. Uh, And showing your emotions includes expressing uh, affection or talking about your feelings uh, for a friend. And so what's really interesting is if you look at young boys, and this is something that uh, Professor Niobe Wayne at New York University has done some really interesting studies on, what you find is that young boys will talk about friends in very similar ways to young girls uh, in, in the early stages of adolescence. So they'll often say things like, I love my friend, but something happens in late adolescence where that suddenly shifts. And in, young boys start talking about loving their friend. Um, they talk in much more distant terms. Um, they, they only relationships that become okay to sort of uh, talk about um, with sort of open affection are actually romantic relationships. And platonic friendships suddenly um, are off limits in a sense. It's not that uh, in late adolescence that boys don't need those relationships, but it's that they start feeling that prioritizing them, talking about those, cherishing those, is somehow against the grain of what they're learning being a man is all about. I think that has real consequences for not just boys, but for men as they grow up. Because the bottom line is men and women both have a need for social connection. But if as a man you're not allowed to talk about that, if you're told somehow that expressions of loneliness are signs that you're not man enough because you shouldn't need other people, then you tend to bottle that up. It's sort of well known that men are typically, you know this is making a major generalization, but typically men are worse than women when it comes to maintaining relationships mm-hmm. in their lives. And this is why when men retire, when they lose a spouse— And when they encounter serious illness, those are three big risk points uh, in the lives of men where they are... Or loneliness. Or loneliness, loneliness. yeah. Um, One of the people who who realized this actually early on was a a woman in Australia named named Maxine Chaseling, who Mm. years ago saw this in her own father, who Mm. retired, became ill... And was just struggling and uh, with loneliness. Now he didn't come to them and say, "You know, honey, I'm lonely." I'm super lonely. No, he's he he manifested his anger and grumpiness. Yeah, which is typically how men manifest depression. That's that's anger and grumpiness, as opposed to sadness. That's exactly right. So what Maxine did is um, realizing that she couldn't reach uh, him on her own, uh, she actually called the police and she said, um, "I'm calling on behalf of Bill Chaseling, uh, her dad." Uh, he would really like to volunteer for the neighborhood watch uh, that the police were overseeing at that time. She was like, I heard that you need uh, uh, you know, local leaders to kind of captain the effort in different neighborhoods, and he's really excited about doing that. Um, could you come and talk to him? The next day, two uniformed police officers show up at her father's house and knock on the door and say, you know, well, we're so happy that you volunteered to help out. We're really grateful. Now he was, of course, flabbergasted because he had no idea about? that he this was happening. To arrest him or something, yeah. But the important thing is, two men in uniform, and he respected the uniform, showed up and told him that he was needed, uh-huh. and in fact that his community needed him. Uh-huh. Not only did <laughs> he show up, not only did he start coordinating, he remained the coordinator until the day he died. Yeah. And it would be, it transformed actually his behavior at home. He felt more connected. He was less grumpy at home. Right. He was happier. And Maxine actually used that that experience uh, to create a larger movement called the Men's Shed Movement, which is a, uh, a movement which uh, literally sheds, you know, in across Australia at that time that have now spread all over the world where men can get together and do woodwork together. They can do metalwork together. They can do various crafts together. And in the process of working together, they end up connecting with each other and talking. Their motto uh, in the early days of the Men's Sheds was that Uh, again, a a gross generalization, but there's an element of truth to it, was that women connect face-to-face and men connect shoulder-to-shoulder. And it was for that reason that they wanted to give men a chance to work next to each other, recognizing that that's how the connections would actually form. And I visited one of these sheds in the United Kingdom and I was just really blown away by these men and the the bonds that are being fostered there. It's really quite an extraordinary Hmm. movement. I found in my own research that about half of men... Uh, get
1: happier when they retire. And half of men get unhappier when they retire. And the difference is that men who get happier are being pulled away from their jobs by other things. They just don't have time to stay at work. And the guys who get unhappier after they retire, they're pushed away from their work. Either they're forced to retire. Or they don't like their jobs. They're, they're repelled from it, but they have no other place to go. And this is completely consistent with what you're talking about, right? Particularly given the fact that we know that that friendship, love of friends is a cultivated effort. And it takes technique. And, and, and one of the reasons that, that a lot of research has shown that men get lonelier as they get older is because they lose their friendship chops. Uh, you know, in, in traditional roles, men are at work all the time. And, and any time you spend with your buddies outside of work, you're cheating your family. So the result is you're very collegial, you, uh, you're, you're very civilized at work, but you don't build up real friendships at work all that often. And you don't have friendships outside of work. And by the time you're 60 years old, your only friend is your wife. Yeah, and your kids have left home, and then by the time you retire, you're really bereft. Does this does this ring true to the Surgeon General?
3: Not only does it ring true generally, but it actually rings true personally for me. And you know, I'll share something I haven't shared a lot in public before. But when, when I was uh, young, I, I certainly struggled with loneliness, but I, I was able to overcome that and became quite social when I was in medical school and graduate school in the early part of my medical career. I had lots of friends. I was going out, you know, with, with people all the time, meeting new people all the time. I, I felt very fulfilled socially. Um, but then what happened is uh, I started to get more and more deeply sort of uh, involved with my work. I start, stopped paying attention as much to my friendships. It was an insidious thing. It didn't happen overnight. But when I became Surgeon General, that was sort of the the epitome of me being completely consumed with my work. You know, and, and, and isolated too, right? And And the irony is that I had people around me all the time. Sure, that's not not what you're talking about. That's not what I'm talking about, right. (laughs) It's uh, What am I doing with those folks, with the quality of our connections? And I realized that I had allowed work to overtake the personal relationships in my life and to squeeze out the friendships and even my time with close family. When I left office, I actually felt profoundly lonely. Mm -hmm. And I struggled for a while to figure out where that was coming from and how to deal with it. And the great irony was here I was, you know, a Surgeon General and now a former Surgeon General talking about the importance of addressing loneliness while feeling it so deeply myself. You still, or is it better? It's a little bit better now, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Because I happened to be at this retreat uh, some about six months ago or so, where I saw two old friends, two friends I love dearly, uh, two guys I look up to, I respect, but I had not been in close touch with them. And we took this walk around a lake during one of the breaks. And I said to them, guys, I said, I'm I feel like I'm struggling with a a lack of connection to to friends. You know, I I used to have so many great friends in my life, and I feel more isolated and alone now. And it turned out that they were feeling a bit of the same. And so we made a pact walking around the lake that day. We said that we are going to, in a very conscious way, be there in each other's lives, not just in theory, but in practice once a month, we're going to set up a video conference where we talk to each other and see each other. Mm. And in between, when major issues come up in our life that we need to think through or talk about, we're just going to get on the phone. We're going to make time and we're going to talk. And we've been doing that now for six months. You've been doing it. You've been living up to it. We have been. And it has made a real big difference in how I feel on a day-to-day basis. I, it's just these two guys. It's just these two guys. Yeah. So I think we, if we look around, in, in, loneliness is, is a great masquerader in a sense. It hides behind... Walls of shame and stigma, which cause people to not talk about the fact they're experiencing loneliness. But loneliness also masquerades as depression, Mm. as addiction, as anger, as violence. These things which we think of as distinct diseases, but often have loneliness at their root. And that's why if we look closely, we'll see that loneliness is in fact all around us. But the exciting part to me and the empowering part is that the solution to loneliness is also all around us. And that we can be each other's solution when we show up in each other's lives, when we choose to help someone, when we choose to speak up or smile and ask, how are you, instead of burying ourselves in our devices. These small acts, as well as the larger acts you know, of, of friendship, these have a measurable impact on how we and other people feel. So,
1: If I were to summarize what you just told me, um, kind of in a nutshell, what should people take away from this? Uh, The love of friends is greatly attenuated by or is related to this loneliness crisis. Uh, A lot of people try to meet the holes in their hearts with with these devices and with social media and that can really make things worse in particular if you're using social media in such a way that it substitutes for human relationships if you're going to use social media and you're going to use devices use them in a way that complement your human relationships it's always complements versus substitutes and so that's really the first big test when it comes to how you use technology or, or indeed whether you use technology if you want to bring more love of friends into your life and have less loneliness is that fair
3: I think that's fair. Yeah, and if, if I had to, uh, people often ask me, like, what, what do you recommend that people do to build stronger connections? How should they manage uh, their their technology? And I usually tell them a couple things. I say, number one, focus on being present in the lives of the people that you love, your family and your friends. And that means drawing boundaries around the use of technology when you're with those people. Um, but the second thing is to recognize that the connect people around you, your coworkers, your classmates, then your neighbors, the the connections you have with them actually are very important. And that doesn't mean that you need to uh, invest hours and hours and hours with uh, these people, but small acts of kindness can actually be incredibly powerful in helping you feel connected uh, to the people around you. But the last thing that I think is important to do is probably the hardest one, Arthur, which is to reflect on our own relationship with ourselves. If we don't feel that we have value and worth, then it's hard to connect with other people and to believe that they think that we're worthy of connecting with. Fundamentally, I think loneliness is connected to the issue of love, right? loneliness in some deep way reflects uh, a deficiency of love that we're feeling in our lives. And in order to feel that love, our natural instinct is to think, well, we need other people to give us love. But when we help others, when we show up for a friend uh, who needs something, when we help a stranger who's struggling, you know, to cross the street or to lift a heavy box, in some way, we are giving that person uh, a small bit of love. Mm -hmm. And what we are doing in that case is not just giving love to them, but we are reminding ourselves that we have love to give. Mm -hmm. And that is a very powerful thing to experience and to know about ourselves. And that's why helping other people is not just benefiting them it's benefiting us. That is the movement I think Mm -hmm. we need to build in our country and around the world, a movement of social connection that's grounded in authentic uh, connection and people showing up as who they are. What a beautiful conversation, thank you. Oh, I loved it. really enjoyed this, Arthur, thank you.
1: A few parting thoughts on love of friends. The search for perfect friendship. We've talked to a lot of people about friendship, about love of friends, and it's come back over and over again to a few themes. Loneliness, devices, social media. So what do we need to do? The answer is not leave it up to chance. Perfect friendship isn't something that just happens. Friendship is a skill and it requires practice and it requires concentration. You gotta put your heart into it. And you have to put some time into it too. So if you're feeling lonely, do what needs to be done to connect with more people. Build up your friendship chops. And it's really worth it. I'm convinced of that. And I bet you are too. Be happier. See you next week. Our team at AEI is CC Gallagher and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, Golda Arthur is senior producer, Jarrett Floyd is our engineer, and Nishat Kurwa is executive producer of audio. Our theme music is composed by Gautam Shrikashen. Please rate and review the podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening.
0: Learn more today at sas.com slash viya.